0: Welcome to the Apostolic Keynote Podcast from Kingdom Faith Church. This message is by Clive Urquhart. So we've had this analogy of the the ship, the sailing ship, and uh, did everybody see the picture on Sunday? On the screen, everybody knows what was drawn. Somebody came up to me afterwards, two or three different people came and talked to me about ships afterwards, and uh, in Horsham. and um, one person said to me, the kind of ship that was drawn um, was a a warship, but it wasn't an all-out warship, that's all it did, and they they said a a certain class of ship back then would have had quite a number of layers, cannons all coming out of the side, and the whole purpose of, of one of those ships was to, to just kill and destroy, was to basically wreak havoc and totally just, you know, whatever. But he said the ship that was in the, uh, in the picture was, was a warship that would have had cannons and weapons, but it was also a supply ship um, and would have carried things that could uh, obviously bring supplies to others Uh, but also could actually take people on board. Um, He said if you have an all-out warship back then, you, you couldn't take many people on because it was just full of soldiers and there wasn't a lot of room for people. Whereas the one that was on the screen, he said it did both. It went into battle, it went to war, but it also had room to carry supplies and to carry the plunder because, uh, you know, wherever it went, you know, so uh, obviously gold and treasure was a bit of a thing then, weren't it, pirates and all that kind of thing. Um, but it had room to carry whatever it plundered on there. So it was quite a good analogy because we're, we're not an all-out warship, that's all we're about, but actually we're going into war equipped with everything that God has put in our lives, individually and together, but we're also gonna destroy the works of the enemy, but also there's gotta be room to bring people on on board. Then another guy came up to me and he said, um, he said, uh, he's done obviously quite a lot of sailing and he said on these on these old sailing ships, he said, what they have, they would have what they call tells and in all the masts and you'd obviously have several masts on these ships and, and other beams or whatever they call them going out from these different masts and he said, within all these different masts and beams, there would be other men, other people, sailors, soldiers, or whatever sailors, positioned in different places. And their responsibility was to make sure that each sail was in the exact position that it needed to be. Um, and they were called tells. And so what would happen is right at the top of, of the mast, you would have lookouts. And and those lookouts would, would not only be looking... Uh, at what was ahead and what was around to see further, but they were also looking at the bridge where the captain was to kind of, uh, so they would have certain ways they would communicate to give instruction to the guy at the top. Uh, So he would communicate to him what he can see, if there's anything out there, and and then the, the, the guy would communicate back to him if the ship needed to change direction, and then the guy at the top would then communicate to all the tells uh, what was going to be happening? So they were ready for the change that was going to be happening on the deck, to, for the sails and everything, and the rigging and everything else. Then they would make sure that all the the sails then uh, uh, are in the right place as all the adjustments were were made. And and he said everybody had to work in unison, exactly at the same time. So it couldn't. It's one guy, well, I fancy doing that now, and another guy, well, I fancy adjusting this now, and all of that. He said it it was like clockwork. That's the phrase he used, and. Um, uh, you know, the thing that Pastor Gary said about Nelson and the, and the, the clock and synchronise, remember that one? Um, and how five minutes can make a difference between victory or defeat. And, and this guy was saying that, he said that the, the way they had to operate, especially going into battle with these things, Um, They had to be so in unity and so at one, working together. He said, otherwise, there's possibly two things that would happen. He said, if if the wind was against you, uh, uh, you had to use the wind to keep your momentum up. And, And that's why everybody had to do everything at exactly the same time. He said, because if there wasn't the unity and one guy did one thing and other people did another, if you don't catch the wind, then you lose all your momentum. And then, then he said, it take, then it takes a lot of time to then get that momentum going, especially if you're going against the wind into a situation. Uh, and obviously, you know, you can uh, spiritual analogies, enemy opposition, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, if, if we don't have that momentum, we lose it, and it takes a while to get that traction. But then he said, the other thing is, once you've got the wind behind you, uh, he said, that is actually more dangerous than, having to go into the wind uh, he said because when you have the wind against you uh, coming with you he said once everything is up there and it's all out there and everybody's in you know and the thing is just going at full tilt in terms of the sailing ship it is on the edge of its speed because sometimes that's they had to get these things he said running at that to, to get into the the battle as quick as they, they could he said but when you uh, when you're running at full full tilt like that he said it only needs a s- one little sail to be slightly out of adjustment and it can begin to tip the ship in a way that one loses its momentum but if one begins to if one begins to adjust and begins to tip and everything else tries to adjust the thing it can actually tip the, the ship or capsize it when you when it's going at full tilt so on one level, we all know when there's opposition and when there's stuff coming against us, we all, right, let's press in, let's go for it and everything. But you know when there's a momentum in God, there's, everything's just really humming and cooking. It's easy, isn't it, to take your foot off the accelerator and say, well, this is getting easy. Or if, if uh, you begin to sometimes take things for granted uh, because there's a wind behind you pushing you along, everything seems to be motoring. And he said, that's the most dangerous moment when when everything's really cooking and uh, and everything still has to to stay exactly right and so these tells he said so every person on this crew whether on deck or up up in the the thing somewhere had to uh everybody had to be in unity everybody had to work together so and, and we've had quite a number of words coming through in different ways about oneness unity everybody on the same page all that kind of stuff and, and so obviously God's, God's doing that. So that's really important. Now, we, we're not gonna, I'm not going to give you a big old word this morning. I'm just going to quickly zip through a few things. Okay, so just turn to Nehemiah if you've got your Bible or your phone or whatever. And we're going to pick out a couple of things in here. Um, chapter 1. So a scenario is here. You've got Nehemiah. He's, he's about a thousand miles away from Jerusalem in a play, place called Susa. And, uh, and he's from Jerusalem. That's where he's actually from, but he's, he's, somewhere, he's living somewhere else, serving another king. And uh, he, verse 3, he kind of questions and asks, how's it going? How's it going back at home in Jerusalem and everything? And uh, this is the report he was given, verse 3. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and distress. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So here's a report about where he lives, about where he comes from, about in his own nation. Then it says here, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So his response was to mourn to fast and to pray. So God has God has got us praying and fasting. Now he obviously spoke to us. So why are we praying and fasting? Well, the same reason that he's praying and fasting. He heard that the people and the place were in trouble and in distress. Why are we praying and fasting? Because people are in distress and trouble. Because out where we live and our nation is in distress and in trouble. That's why we're praying and fasting. We're praying and fasting to see change. We're praying and fasting to see transformation. We're praying and fasting, yes, for our own lives to be revived in an ongoing way, uh, but we're praying not for ourselves, but for for the benefit of others. Then he prays this prayer through the rest of chapter one. He begins by worshiping and acknowledging who God is, and then he begins to declare the truth as he is worshiping and begins to pray. So he starts with who God is. He begins to declare the truth, and uh, when you then get into verse six, it, uh, it then he says to the Lord, "Let your ear be attentive to your eyes, uh, and sorry, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant who is praying before you day and night." So he understood the emergency of the moment. So he was—he what was he doing? I can't carry on the same lifestyle and the same schedule as I have been. I've now heard something that I didn't know or wasn't so much aware of, or something's become real to me in a way that it wasn't before, and so therefore my schedule and my lifestyle needs to change because something needs to happen. Are you getting it? I can't just carry on the same thing. Something's got to change. And so he begins to pray day and night in this circumstance, situation. Then he begins to remind the Lord of promises and, and things that he's been, God has been saying. And some of that God wants us to pray in that way. You know, Pastor Colin brought something a while ago that uh, said we will not be denied. Anybody remember that? We're not going to be denied. And so God wants us to pray that way way in terms of his promises and his purposes some of it is like father you said this and we're going to have that we're not going to be denied so that determination in in prayer now when he begins to pray he starts with himself he humbles himself and and wants, and he confesses any sin that he needs to the sins of his household his family he starts at home here then he begins to pray for the people and the nation so whenever we pray, God's always going to start with us. And so there's that continual refining process that, that God does uh, so that our prayer is fervent and effective for whoever we're praying for. Okay, Then let's get into chapter 2. We're going to whiz through some of this and focus on some other bits uh, this morning. So into chapter 2, uh, he's, he's serving the king. He's a bit downcast. The king notices that. says, why are you so sad? Because you're obviously not normally like that. Now, he has a burden. He's carrying something. Uh, and so he's got something on his mind. He's got something on his heart. So even when he's going about his daily business of serving the king or doing his job or whatever, in his, you know, whatever we do in our lives, he's carrying something. There's something that he's aware of constantly. So even as he's serving and going about his daily job, other people are noticing, what, what, what is it? You know, is there something, you know, what's going on? And, and then he, he basically tells the king what is going on um, <clears throat> in his heart at that moment. So then the king says to him, what is it that you want? Then he says to the king, I want to go and rebuild the city. Now when you look a few verses later in verse 11 of chapter 2, it actually says, Nehemiah says, I I did not tell anybody what God had put in my heart. So when he was in Jerusalem, when he went there, because the king let him go there and said you can go and do it. When he was in Jerusalem in verse 11, he, he begins to look around and suss things out. But Nehemiah says, I did not tell anybody what was in my heart. So when he was praying and fasting back in Susa, that's when God put in his heart what he was to do. So he was not only carrying a burden for his people and for the place, he actually knew what God had told him to do. So there were two things. He was carrying God's heart, but he also knew what he was to do. When the king said, what is it you want? The king said, I want to go and rebuild the city. What do you need? He said, can I have all the supplies? Now, what happened next is uh, he asked the king for letters. I need letters from you that are going to give me authority to, to get what I need to go and rebuild the city. Now, in one sense, it's, it's the authority of God's word that releases everything that we need to go and rebuild, to go and see people's lives changed and, and a community or a town or a city transformed, Right. So there are words from God. And we have, in one sense, letters written in a book here. These are letters from God. This reveals his purposes, shows us the authority that we have, the equipment that we have, and everything else that we need to get the job done. And so he then goes and uh, he begins to check out uh, the place, Jerusalem. Now, he hasn't even started to rebuild anything. And in verse 10, it says there's opposition from a few guys called Sambalat, Tobiah, uh, the Horonite. There is another guy that joins in in a few verses time. But there's a bit of opposition. So before he's even started, he's getting opposed. And why does he get opposed? It's interesting, this verse. Let's look at verse 10. He gets opposition from these three guys. And at the end of verse 10, because someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So, what does that tell us? Firstly, we're not here to tell everybody what's wrong with them. That we're right and they're wrong. We're here to promote the welfare of the people. We're here for the benefit of the people. And, uh, and so, that's the heart. Now, the enemy knows what we live for. And before he'd even started to do anything, the enemy comes against him and starts to shout him down and starts to uh, come against him to put him off. Anyway, let's, we'll come back to a bit more of that uh, in a minute. So the next few verses, 11 down to 16, what does he do? He goes to Jerusalem and begins to walk around the city, check things out. He still hasn't told anybody why he's there and what he's doing. He's just, He's just mulling over what is in his heart and he begins to look at the situation. Now, he looks at the situation not to check it out, to see the size of the task and to be put off. He looks at it by faith and with faith to know what needs to happen and how he needs to distribute the resource, the people, to then go and do the job. So you can look at circumstances in two ways. You can look at it and go, That's a massive task. (laughs) How are we going to do that? And that can put you off. But he looked at it with faith. Why? Because God had already spoken to him. He put something in his heart that he was carrying. So during this prayer and fasting time, one of the things that happens is God will be speaking to you and he'll be putting things into you, into your heart, into your spirit, and we need to be open and we need to be listening so that, so that what God says we become carriers of so that no matter what he says to you, when you look at what he says to you needs to happen, you're not put off by the circumstances or the size of the challenge, but actually what is in you is just looking at it going, right, okay, that's the task at hand, right. I see what's needed, great. So if God is my supply of everything that I need, in the same way for Nehemiah, God had already made provision. So when he asked the king for what he needed, there was a release of provision to accomplish the task. So we have everything we need to accomplish the task. The only thing that he needed was people then to accomplish it. And we are some of those people, right? So he goes in this situation, checks it out. Then he begins to, in verse 17 and 18 of chapter 2, he begins to gather the people and share his heart and say what he believes God wants to do. Now, when somebody has a conviction, when you have a conviction You believe something on the inside of you and you begin to share that with people because you can't help it. It comes from God. You're excited about it. You can see it. You can see it fulfilled. There's something going off on the inside of you. When you speak to people like that, it releases something in them. It inspires something in them. It activates something in them. It releases faith. It releases sight. It releases an expectation. Why? Because there's something living and real on the inside of you. You don't come at it from circumstances or impossibilities or where we could or we might. You come at it from, hey, this is what God said. This is what's on the inside of me. This is what God wants to do. This is what we're going to see happen. Come on, let's go. And people begin to go, yeah, 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 it's possible. Yeah, come on, then let's do it. It only takes one person of faith to inspire many to begin to move forward in a way they wouldn't without that person of faith. Now, you are one of those people of faith. And when, but when somebody talks to you and they don't quite believe what they're saying, you, you sit there going, yeah, well, it sounds great, but, but you don't sound like you believe that yourself. And there's a difference between something that's been caught and heard from God and something that's just a good idea from someone else. Or oh, I'd like to see this, or I'd like to see that. Wouldn't it be good if, wouldn't it be good if? But when you've when you got something from God, it's not about ifs and buts. You don't even talk about the impossibilities at first. You, you, you look at, this is possible. God has said, come on, let's go. There's some realities when you then need to look what's needed, what's involved. Okay, well, let's go and let's see that happen. So he begins to inspire the people. They, they, their response in verse 18 is, come on, let's start the work. Let's go and do it. Let's begin to rebuild. Then we see in the next couple of verses, 19 and 20, more opposition again they haven't actually started doing anything and the enemy comes against us one of the things he says to us is what is the point the task is too great why bother who do you think you are that you can make a difference why are you any more special than anybody else how many of you know he comes with that sort of stuff anybody heard that kind of thing or was it just me you know, and uh, it's like it's like Nehemiah had a, a kind of um, an ignore button going on inside him. That no matter what opposition came, it's like, well, I just ignore that and carry on. And and you know, when the enemy comes against us, we just need to press the ignore button. It's like, well, I'm going to ignore that because that's a lie. I'm going to ignore that because that's not who I am. I'm going to ignore that because that's a load of rubbish. Do you know what I mean? And and so just press that ignore button. Uh, that also says, "Shut your mouth! I've got something more important to do. I've got some more things to get on with." Let's go into chapter three. Are you all right? We're sort of rattling through some of this, and uh, so then they begin. Chapter three is all about rebuilding the walls, and he and he names all the different individuals, groups, and larger groups that are involved in the work to get it done. Okay, now all our names are going to be in heaven, and there's a couple of books. One is the one that has your name in it, that you're saved. There's, other, there's another book that has your name in it that then lists all the things that you did. All the good stuff. Because all the rubbish is, is rubbed out. There'll be no rubbish in that book. The only things that will be written in this book are all the things that were done in Christ through your life. And so, in one sense, chapter 3 is like that. So they rebuilt the city walls and Nehemiah listed, these are all the people that, were part, uh, that accomplished something in God's name or whatever, or, or by Christ. I mean, I know Jesus wasn't alive then in the same way in, like he is now, but you, you get what I'm saying, right? And uh, so our names are going to be written, you know, and all the stuff that we did. Now, these guys, it's interesting how nobody worked on their own. Everybody worked in groups to get the job done. Now, this is why small groups are so, so important in the life of a church. And this is why small groups need to be geared around heart and passion, a purpose, not just let's meet, greet, chat about this, that, and the other. Because these guys worked in small groups to rebuild the wall so that the city could be established and lives could be changed. So every small group that we have in the life of the church needs to be geared around a purpose that's going to rebuild lives, make disciples and transform things. If they don't do that, there's no point having them. Absolute waste of time. So a small group needs to, the heart of its relationship with purpose. So all these guys, they were they worked in they worked in different groupings. Okay, we, we haven't, we're not going to read through them all now, but they were all connected in different ways. And every group connected somehow with the next one. And some groups were larger than others. Doesn't matter how big or small they were, but they were relationship with purpose. They all. This is what we're doing now. Within that, every individual. Was picking up rocks, stones, and doing stuff. Sometimes they would work together, pick up larger stones, or whatever they were doing, and putting things in place and gates and this and that and the other. So there was an individual aspect where everybody had to put their, put their, their, put, had to put themselves to work. You have to put your faith to work in that sense. So we all have a personal witness as part of what we're doing. We all reach individuals, but also together they were rebuilding the wall and working together to see this thing built, or if we can translate that to our context, lives being changed. Okay. So we're going to skip on. Chapter 4 now. Begin of chapter 4. So they're rebuilding the wall. Stuff is happening. There's a momentum. Uh, What happens next? More opposition. It became even more targeted now. So instead of general stuff going on, the enemy now has to focus. He started calling them "you feeble Jews" in verses one to three. Let's just read it. Uh, when these the usual guys, Sam Ballant and his mates, heard that the building of the wall was going well, uh, he became angry and was greatly incensed. This is what the enemy's like. When we pick, when there's a momentum, the enemy hates it. So praying day and night is a whole other momentum than just doing what we were doing before Christmas and how things are going to continue after the prayer and fasting, because this is the beginning of something. There's there's not an end to the prayer and fasting. This is the beginning of a new way of living. So these prayer watches, that by the grace of God, will carry on. That's why we've said to people, you need to hear what God is saying to you about the watch that he's calling you to stand in and to be in because it's not about prayer slots and fulfilling a rotor of 24 hours to try and get everybody, oh, we're praying 24-7. That, that, that won't do anything if it's just for that reason. But we have these watches that we stand in and pray in and, 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 and have victory in for situations. So then he says here, he ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria. So now he's not just a few. He's got the whole army there. So how do, what does the enemy do? Intimidation. So he wants to intimidate. The whole army now is, uh, is there. What, uh, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Now that's people. The enemy wants us to look at people's lives and say, "Look at the state of that person's life. You think they're going to come alive, do you? Look at the state of them. Look at the, all of that. And, and the enemy constantly wants you to look us to look at circumstances, the way things are to put us off. And then in the next verse, it then says, "What they are building, even if a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall. Of stones. He's like, this is never gonna last. It's not gonna last. It's not pray all you want, fast all you want, go on, do it, but it's not gonna last. It's not gonna last. It's only gonna be you're only gonna be hot for that season of prayer and fasting. It's only gonna be effective during those few weeks. But once that's done, you'll go back to your normal way of living. You'll go back to your normal lifestyle. That's how the enemy is is wanting to taunt and, and have a go. Are you with me this morning? Because this is how he operates. So the task is too great. It will never lie. All that sort of stuff. Then he, then in verse 8, he says, we're going to attack you. We're going to come against you. We're going to, and the enemy constantly, we're, we're now going to ramp up what we're doing. If you're going to ramp up your prayer and fasting and you're going to change your lifestyle and give yourself in a different way, then I'm going to turn the temperature up as well. I'm going to come against you even more. Now, the enemy is threat. Constant threats. He works on fear and intimidation. That's how he operates. Fear, intimidation and, and doubt. If, if you can get your doubt in, that doubt can turn into unbelief. Fear, intimidation and doubt is how the enemy works. So what, what was their response? Their response is, right, okay, we're going to up the prayer then. Yeah. Verse 9, it says here in chapter 4, but we pray to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. What does that mean? To cancel out the threat. So what does prayer do? Prayer cancels out the threats of the enemy. That's one of the reasons why we pray. It cancels out the enemy. It, it pulls the carpet from under his feet. It chops his legs off, chops his arms off, shuts his mouth. I don't know, whatever, cuts his head off. But prayer... Um, deals with that. So they then begin to move into, now now there's a momentum building, they begin to move into day and night. So when he was praying and fasting himself, he was praying day and night. An individual can hear something from God and they can set their life as an individual and go after God. But in order to get the task done, it needed more than one person that was living in that way. So when he gathered everybody together, there wasn't any day or night at the beginning, but as the thing went on and the opposition increased, they had to begin to operate day and night in what they were doing. So they posted a guard. When it says there, it's not just a person, because there was a whole city wall. When it says they posted a guard, it meant they understood we need to set up a guard all around and whoever is standing in the night is a guard. Is part of the guard in that sense. So it's a plural thing there, not just a singular thing when you, when you read the words that are put in there. So it wasn't just we set one guy somewhere and he was sort of on his own at night. Well, hopefully, every, you know, if somebody turns up, somebody's got my back. They had loads of these guys around the, the city walls protecting. So they posted a guard day and night to cancel out the threat of uh, the enemy. God's speaking to us about setting up a guard day and night. So the continual night and day prayer is like setting up a guard in the spirit because we see what's going on in the nation, we see what's going on in our culture. We, see, we understand all the stuff that happens in the night and, 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 and the, what the enemy does. He does it 24-7, but particularly in the night hours and what goes on. And God's calling the church, he's calling our church, he's calling us. To, to be night and day. As we said on Sunday in Horsham, it doesn't mean everybody has to pray through the night every night. And what it does mean is as a body together, we stand in the watch that God has spoken to us about. And as we move together in unity And in sync, as we all are like the tells on, you know, in the sails of a ship, and we're looking, we're looking to the guy who's going to give us direction that's coming from the captain or whatever. However it worked, we're we're in sync together, so that whatever prayer watch you do, and then the next person after you, the next people, because there's many people in in all the different hours that are praying. What we're doing is we're praying in sync, synchronised. We're praying in unity. We're praying in the Spirit as if it was one person praying continually. You understand that? Because if we're doing something in the Spirit, then there's an assault on the things in the Spirit to bring defeat, to overcome and to tear tear them down. So... Verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is given out and there is much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. So even though they were moving forward, even though things were going well, they still saw the size of the task. Sometimes on the journey, as we continue to push in and and go forward, sometimes we can get a bit tired. Sometimes it's like, wow, this is, there's so much more to see happen, so much more to, to do. And, and that's why Everything that God is saying is not down to one person to fulfill. Because we can't. But together, we can. Together, we can. But everybody needs to stand in that place so that together, we can. So, what happened at different moments when we read some of the verses in the next? Every now and then, they gathered everybody together. There was a trumpet blast, or, or they put a signal out, and everybody came together. Why, why do we gather together? So what is Sunday morning for? Sunday morning is a gathering point for the troops. Sunday morning is a gathering point for the, for the, for the builders, for the gatherers, for those that are... In this thing together. So what happens on a Sunday morning? We praise God. We worship God together. Because there's a sound when we come together that encourages, builds and strengthens. And we all acknowledge, oh yeah, and this is who God is. Why? Because in the everyday of life, there's lots of stuff that tries to take us to the left, to the right and this and that and the other. So when we come together, one, we encourage, we get strengthened because we're worshiping who God is. Secondly, we, we are, we come in, we hear what God wants to say to remind us of who we are individually, to remind us of who we are together, and then to set us on a course for continued victory during the week. That's why we gather on a Sunday. We we don't gather on a Sunday to lick our wounds. We don't gather on a Sunday to have a there, there, you'll be all right. All that happens in small groups. That's where you get bandaged up. That's where... You get strengthened. That's where you get a hug. That's where you get a cuddle. That's where somebody comes alongside you to comfort, to strengthen you. That happens in small groups. That's where the relationships are. Sunday morning is a gathering of the troops. Amen. It's where God wants to release something into the body so that we carry something out from there into the. it. Doesn't mean God's not revealing his love on all that on a Sunday, but you, you get what I'm saying. Anyway. So then, then we, we carry on from there. So every now and then they gather everybody together to remind everybody, hey, guys, we might not see each other all the time. So some people like small churches. I like 50 people because I can then know everybody. Great. Um, I don't like bigger churches. And some people say this, I don't like bigger churches because in bigger churches, there's no love there. It's just a big church. And, and so a small church has more love in it. it. was like, well, where'd you get that from? Because whether you've got 50 or whether you've got 500 or whether you've got 5,000, you've still got to be in a small group relationally with other people, living out a purpose together. So if you're in relationship with one another, there's 5, six, eight, 10, 15 people you're sharing life with, doing life with, and you're, you're believing God to see breakthroughs and release, and you'll like know that. Uh, uh, and, and imagine, so if you've if you got relationship and identity and context like that, it doesn't matter whether you've got 50 in the church or whether you've got 5,000 in the church, because your, your basis of identity and belonging is not based, do I feel loved by 5,000 people and do I know everybody by name or not? It's no, I've, I've got this bunch of guys I'm mates with, friends with, sharing life with, with and we're going after this because this is what God's put on our heart are you, are you there so we're not part of a club we're part of an army part of a family anyway verse 22 let's get into that for a moment uh, if I can find it in the bible verse 22 so they, they were he, uh, there's different points where he encourages people through the story right and verse 22, what does he say? This is, the, this is the kind of thing. So we continue, the verse 21, We continue the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time I also said to the people, Have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor my guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water, there's quite a few things in, in here in this these couple of verses. So they continue the work, no matter what the opposition, no matter what was going on, um, holding spears, prayer. At that time, we uh, every man to stay inside Jerusalem. Now he then talks about guards at night and workmen by day. Let's use, instead of guards, let's use the word watchmen. Now we mentioned this on Sunday in, in Horsham. So God has called us to be watchmen and workmen watchman and workman. So every person is a watchman. Every person has a place spiritually in the spirit to pray and to stand in their watch, to stand in the gap or whatever that represents. Everybody's called to be a watchman but everybody's called to be a workman. And God speaks into our hearts and lives as to what that looks like for both. So what is your prayer watch? But then also, what does being a workman look like? Now, we all have a witness in our own lives, as we've said. But also, God wants the heart and passion. Again, geared into small groups. And uh, you you connect with others, you've got the same heart, same passion. and, And some of that is how we do our work, reach out into people's lives. So, two things going on here. Pray and go. Pray and go. Pray and go. Pray and go. There's got to be an outwork into the prayer. And God will speak to you about what that looks like. Okay? Spear in one hand, tools in the other. Then they completed the work in 52 days. Against all odds, they accomplished it. It was phenomenal. The people could then live in the city, the city was re established, and, and uh, whatever went from there. Now, just a couple of other things we're just gonna quickly look at in relation to this. So God's been speaking about night and day, prayer watches, about being workmen, watchmen, workmen and everything. He's working in every one of our hearts and lives. God wants this to become our lifestyle, not just for prayer and fasting. Now, we know there's a few extra meetings going on during this season, so we have lunchtime prayer every day, We've got encounter nights, three nights a week. So there's a momentum that can help to pick up and get going. But the thing about the prayer watch is, it's not based on everybody having to come together to do something. It's based on everybody individually carrying that responsibility because they've caught something on the inside that they live with and are carrying. And therefore standing in that watch, standing in that gap, standing in that place, and, and God wants to continue the momentum of what he's doing. Why do we have eight o'clock meetings every day? Why have we done this for a long, long time, for decades? Why, because every day we wanna be worshiping, every day we wanna be praying, every day we wanna stand in the watch, every day we wanna stand in, as to who we are. Why? We wanna start the day with a spiritual momentum because we, wanna, we want there to be a release at the beginning of the day for that day. That's why we're coming here. We don't do it because it's religious. We don't do it because we just do it. Why? We do it because we want to see a release into what God wants to do. So when we look at Jesus' life, we haven't got time now, but there's a number of scenarios in in different scriptures where it talks about Jesus praying in the night, or he went off to a solitary place to pray, or to lonely places to pray. Uh, But often he was busy during the day being a workman, but then at night was a watchman. And when you read through the, the Gospels, you see that he prayed at different times. He, sometimes he prayed in the early watches of the night, some, as in the first part of the night. The Jewish day starts at 6 p.m. So it doesn't start, for, like ours is midnight, isn't it? When the Jewish day starts, the evening started, or the next day started at six o'clock in the evening. So sometimes Jesus would pray into that part of the day. Remember, we have electricity. We have buildings with lights and everything else. We can do stuff all the time. Back then, they had none of that, they had candles. So once the sun went down, it was dark. That was it, the day's over, um, on one level. Um, so he would go off sometimes in that f- those first, every watch, in, in the Jewish calendar is a three hour segment, six till nine, nine till 12, 12 to three and so on through the 24 hours. So he would go off in a watch maybe early evening, six till nine, maybe nine till 12. There were other times where he would pray from midnight to early or there were different watches in the night when you read different scriptures as to when he was praying. So I, uh, by saying this, I'm not saying we all have to be up in the night every night praying. Um, But if God speaks to you about being up in the night to pray, He'll grace you for it um, to to do it. So there's Jesus who lives in that way. Now, He was pretty victorious, wasn't He, Jesus? Uh, He seemed to be ready for any occasion. Um, You know, when He'd been, He took Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Beatitudes, up to the, um, the Transfiguration scenario that happened, and and he was revealed in all his glory and they didn't know what to do. Then they came down and the other disciples had been trying to cast a demon out of a, a boy and they couldn't do it. And, uh, and then Jesus kind of rebukes them a little bit and says, look, you just need a little bit of faith. And he, he prays for the guy and the boy and he gets totally, totally healed. Well, when we spend time in, with God in his presence and we're cultivating something, we're praying in those watches, there's a release then to see the victory in the day in scenarios like that. So what I'm not saying is if you pray in the night, you will see more power getting released. It's not a formula. Well, if I go and do this, that will happen. No, everything's by faith. Everything's by faith. It's not by works. Um, You can pray in the day and see release of God's power. So it's not, oh, the night is something special. But there are some victories, some breakthroughs and some resistance that we need to come against the enemy with in the night where he runs riot and he goes nuts in the night. And I believe as we increasingly, there's prayer through the night, there are more and more things that are going to be prevented from happening than if we don't pray that things carry on. So it's part of our prayer. Then we see, and we, yesterday was a brilliant time, wasn't it? Yesterday lunchtime. the the lunch prayer meeting. And the story there with Paul and Silas, two stories where things happened at at midnight. One is Paul and Silas in in prison and what happened with them. The other one is Peter, a couple of chapters earlier. And it's interesting in the midnight hour with those guys, when they were praising and worshiping, that's when there was something shaken. That's when there was a release. That's where the, the, the whole thing was shaken. The prison doors were burst open. And, and, uh, and they went, obviously they could go free. There's something about the midnight hour. Then when you look at Peter, he was in prison and uh, while he was in there, it says, the believers were fervently praying for him. And an angel appeared to him, the shackles fell off, even though he had a soldier each side of him. And, and the thing with Peter, the same as Paul and Silas, Peter, they, with Peter, they put him in the, they put him in the. Um, I don't even know what it's called, but it's the, the cell right in the middle, that was dark, no light. It would be damp. It'd be horrible. Uh, there's no way out. It's, it's not just you know like a, a a you know a prison somewhere. It was like the the deepest, most secure place. And even in there, they put guards either side of him, so there were guards in the prison cell with him, chained to him, outside the door of the most secure cell in the prison. There were two other guards, or four of them, or whatever it was, standing outside his prison cell. So why did they do that? Because they knew the power that Peter had. It's like, this guy had not committed a violent crime or anything, he hadn't done anything that was like, this guy's dangerous in the natural, you know, he's dangerous. We've got to put him in the most secure cell. They, they knew this guy carries something. Things happen around this guy and we've got to lock him up. And, and the enemy wants to, to try and put as much stoppage around our lives to hinder us from operating in the power of God and the things of God. But what happened? The believers were praying. An angel appeared. The, the shackles were broken. The door opened and the angel said, Come on, Peter, let's go. There's things to do. You can't stay here and, uh, and and he led him out and even the other guards that were standing there, it was like they were asleep and, and he walked through those and then when he was out of the prison, walking along a street, he suddenly came to and realised this isn't just a dream or a vision, I'm out. <clears throat> and then he went and found the believers Knocked on the door. Somebody who, they were all in a prayer meeting. They were at that moment, you know, what were they praying? Free Peter, Father, we ask you that you would somehow get him out, get him out, get him out. Come on, Father, get him out or whatever. They were praying and and then there's a knock at the door. One of them goes to the door. They open and, and she, well, she might have looked through the little slat or whatever and it's like, oh, it's It can't be Peter. You know, she doesn't open the door. She goes back and and she says to everybody, hey, Peter's at the door. And what was their response? No, it can't be. He's in prison. But they were praying, come on, God, get Peter out, get Peter out. And she goes back and says, it's Peter. And they're like, no, it can't be. It can't be. It's like, anyway, they went to the door and it was him. He was there. So the enemy, even in the midst of our prayer, wants to say, it can't be, it can't be. It's ridiculous. So sometimes when you're praying, that you, a lot of time when we're praying, because especially the way we pray, you're praying with everything you have and you're praying like, this is, you know, but then also sometimes in the midst of all of that, has anybody had these other thoughts to try and come in, to try and stop you, put you off, slow you down, quieten you down? And, uh, and, and just maybe, haven't we got to the moment where we can just go, ah, oh, you know, whatever? Because we all love that moment where it's like, oh, I haven't got to do anything, just Jesus, just Jesus. <laughs> You know, and I think sometimes the enemy doesn't mind if we're right in full tilt, and it's like, Whoa! you know, we're going for it, and he's like, "That's it, yeah, you got the victory, you got the victory." Don't pray anymore, don't pray anymore, and we go, "Oh, lovely, lovely Jesus," you know. And the Holy Spirit's going, "No, no, no, there's not a breakthrough yet. Keep going, keep going," and and that's how the enemy wants to work. But all this stuff happened in the midnight. There's something about the midnight hour spiritually. There's a shift from one day to the next there's a shift in the spirit when we when we pray so let's jump to our feet i think i've rattled on enough this morning you probably all think the same that's enough can we go and um so are you ready just jump coming to the middle then and um Great, thank you Lord. Let's just come into the middle and just for a moment I want you to stand there before we do anything. Now Peter was put in jail. He was put in the most maximum security cell. You have the same Holy Spirit You have the same weapons, the same word, the same authority. You have all of the same resources in you as Peter. So the enemy cannot hold you down. The enemy cannot shackle you. if you don't don't allow him to, cannot shackle you. The enemy cannot keep you from moving in your destiny and your purpose in God. That cell could not stop Peter moving in his destiny, in his purpose. The angel turned up, shackles broke, doors open, he led him out. The enemy cannot stop you in your tracks. Unless we let him. So you have everything you need in you. To live in the way that God has called us to. To be a person of victory. To be a person of breakthrough. To be a person of release. To be a person who is fruitful and effective in their lives. Now just wherever you are, just thank him first of all that you are part of rebuilding the city, rebuilding lives, rebuilding the town, whichever town we're reaching into, that you're part of that workforce. You're part of that workforce. You're part of that workforce. workforce. Just thank him that you're part of rebuilding lives, re-establishing his kingdom in lives, re-establishing what God wants to do. Just thank him that he's equipped you, that you have everything that you need. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you. We praise your name. Just thank him that he's called you to be a workman, Thank Him He's called you to be a workman and a workman that's going to be effective so that when we stand before Him one day and He opens the book and and it's written, it's like, well done, good and faithful servant. I put this on the inside of you and this is what you did with it. These are the lives that got changed. It was Joe Bloggs, it was Mary Smith, it was Jordan so-and-so, you know, whatever. These are the lives that were transformed. These are the ones you led to the Lord. These are those that got healed. These are the ones you got alongside. These are the ones you fed. These are the ones you watered. These are the ones you sheltered. These are the ones that you blessed. These are the ones that you laid your lives down for. These are the ones that you led to the Lord. These are the ones you disciple. This is, all of that kind of stuff is going to be in there about our lives. So thank Him He's called you to be a workman that's going to be fruitful and effective. But then thank Him He's called you to be a watchman as well. Father, I thank You. You called me to be a watchman. Somebody who stands in the gap, stands in a place in the Spirit to get victory, to hinder the enemy, but also to then release your purposes. Thank you, You called me to be a person of breakthrough in prayer, authority in prayer, be a person of victory in prayer. Thank you, Father, you've graced me to pray, you've graced me to intercede, you've graced me to stand. Like Jesus said to the disciples, could you not watch with me just for one hour? And then he said, pray, otherwise uh, you'll fall into temptation. So Father you know the antidote to temptation is to be a person of prayer, somebody who stands in those places, who's hearing something from you, who catches something in their spirit, begins to carry something because when you carry something in your spirit, when you carry something in your heart, that is what takes your thoughts captive, that is what takes your imagination captive, that's what takes your desires captive and so what you've caught on the inside, you begin to Give your life to you. Give to yourself to, and therefore you say, "There's no room for other things. There's no room to be sidetracked. There's no room for temptation to take root and become sin. There's no room to be distracted because something else has caught a hold of your heart. Something else has caught a hold of your spirit." Maybe just say to the Lord Father, "I want to be one of those," and then say, "Father, I thank you that I am one of those." It's not just in the future. I want to be increasingly, but I am already. So maybe just invite the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, speak to me. If you haven't heard already, enable me to capture your heart. I thank you as you speak and work. I begin to carry something more than I ever have before. That that becomes so defining in my life, the choices that I make. And then are centred around what I'm carrying. The way I spend the money that I have in my life is determined then by what I'm carrying. The way resources are distributed through my life is determined by what I'm Carrying. Jay and I are in the process of moving house And, and uh, we're not moving yet Our house is for sale and there's Somebody who wants to buy it and, uh, and, But in terms of where we're moving to Which we're not exactly sure But where we're God spoke to us about What our house needs to be like For this next season And, and the kind of space we need to have In our home for people coming into it but it's all connected to, on one level, we'd like to downsize and just buy a smaller house and just the two of us live there and that's it. I mean, obviously Meg's is still with us. Um but she will get married sooner or later. And uh without putting any timing on that. <laughs> and um and then it then on one level, it, you know, it'd be Jane and I, and, and if you just if, if if downsize brilliant financially, that'd be great. You can do this, that, and the other with other money and all of that sort of stuff. And and uh, and then we can just just crack on with everything we're doing, and we you know we won't have to think about anybody being at home, or do, we can just do whatever. And and God said that's not the season I'm taking you into. You still need to have space for doing this, this, and this, and the other, and all those kind of things. So on one level, I'd rather not do that. I'd rather just whatever, downsize, and and so even where we move to. And what that means for us financially uh, is connected with what we're carrying. So even that, down to where you live, the home you buy and all of that kind of stuff, uh, is connected with what you are carrying. So maybe just this morning, Father, it's a new day today. And so I surrender afresh today. I want to just put my life back into your hands or into your hands at the beginning of this day like the disciples put the loaves and fishes into your hands. The little that they had that you were going to feed a multitude with. I just put my life back in your hands because there's a multitude out there And as we put our lives in God's hands, what does he do? He blesses. And then he reaches back to us. He says, now go and distribute what I've put in you. Go and release what I've put in you. And it will feed a multitude. And you'll have more left over than you'll need for the multitude. What does that show? doesn't matter what God asks us, commands us, leads us into, tells us to do, whatever, there's always more than enough. There's always more than enough to meet the situation in the way that God does. So just thank him, Father, I thank you that I have more than enough. See, the enemy wants to constantly say, you lack, you lack, you lack, you don't have enough, you don't feel like you have enough, you don't think you have enough. The enemy just constantly lies like that, whereas God says, you got more than enough. How do we know that? We've got Him. If we've got Him in our lives, we've got more than enough. More than enough. So just thank Him. You've got the words you need. Just thank Him. Father, I thank You. I've got the words I need in any situation. Thank Him that You've got the wisdom that you need. Thank Him you've got the sensitivity that you need. Thank Him you've got the compassion that you need. Thank Him you've got the love that you need. Just thank Him right now. Thank Him. Thank Him for the faith that you need. You've got the faith right now that you need for what is going to be right in front of you. And as we move forward and we see God move and work through our lives, your faith grows, your faith grows, your faith increases. Then God puts other things in front of you that you might not have known what to do six months, three months or a year before. But as you move forward, He puts other things in front because your faith grows, your expectation grows. How you're moving with Him is growing there's a difference between your faith growing and the gift of faith. There can be a situation that is in front of you that you need a gift of faith for, that God speaks and faith is released in you for that moment, for that situation. That's called the gift of faith. But we want to see the dynamic of faith develop in our lives and that's the faith that we live by, the faith that is growing in us. What does faith do? Faith is connected with authority and confidence and boldness. That when there's a faith in God and your faith is growing, there's an There's an assuredness, there's a boldness, there's a confidence, there's a courage to move towards things because the dynamic of faith or that level of faith that that you are living in and is at work in you enables you to operate and move in a certain way. So God wants our faith to be growing constantly because we're walking with Him, we're responding to Him, we're seeing things happen so our faith grows. But then sometimes God will put a situation on that growth, faith growth walk. He'll put something in front of us. It's like, whoa, Father, I I need a release of faith. I need a gift of faith. And God speaks to you and releases faith for that situation. You move towards it and see breakthrough or victory or release or whatever it is. And then that, that is then part of your faith growing to another level that you then begin to live by because God's done something in that moment that's released something to operate in. Do you understand all that? How that works? So, thank him that you are a person of faith. Just thank him that you have, as well as you have the words, the wisdom, and everything else. Just thank him that you have the power that you need. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we praise your mighty name. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing amongst us. We thank you, Jesus. Now, we all have a, uh, an ignore button in our lives, and that ignore button is simply a decision. That we make When doubt comes at the door Or fear comes to the door (laughs) Or the enemy comes to lie To say whatever Because that's who he is That's what he does He doesn't know how to do anything else It's the only trick in his book He's a liar And we have an ignore button And We need to just use that ignore button. And the more you use that ignore button, what you find is the enemy's taunts have less and less and less effect on you because they start hitting up against your shield of faith, which is called the ignore button. So when you hold your shield of faith up to quench the fiery darts of the enemy, the lies, you're holding up your ignore button saying, not interested, not interested, not interested, not listening, not listening. Don't believe that. That's not who I am. That's rubbish. So you're just holding that up. And what is the sword of the Spirit for? That's to move forward. That's to advance. So when you're advancing in faith and everything else, you're holding your shield of faith up all the time. Because as you advance, the enemy's coming against you. As long as you're holding your shield of faith up, he's got no answer to that. And you can keep advancing, keep going forward. Sometimes there's a bit of resistance, but you've got to keep going. Just keep pushing in. That picture that somebody had, the vision, I, I, I shared it on Sunday. I don't know if I've shared it anywhere else. Somebody had a vision of a, a massive canal the size of the Panama Canal. Huge, great lock gates. And there was a ship on in, in the water, on the, high, the higher side of the water, and this lady said, I was on the ship and, and, and nothing was moving. And I knew I had to get off the ship and started turning the key, this big thing, um, to, to start letting the water out. And she said, at first, I didn't really want to get off the boat because I thought, oh, this is going to be effort. It's going to have to, you know, I'm going to have to put some work into this and, and everything. But I just knew I had to get off the boat and started turning the key of the lock. And, and as I, she said, as I, in this vision, as I began to turn this this, this lock, uh, uh, water began to get released until the lock gates were ready to open properly and let this whole kind of thing uh, come forward and she said but it was it was, it, was, there was some resi- it was a bit of hard work I had to put back into it it was that kind of thing but yet the outcome was was release and sometimes it's easy to give up when there's resistance it's easy to give up when it's do I have to pray a bit more do I have to press in a bit you know we've we not got breakthrough yet because there's an enemy that is resisting We want to be like Nehemiah. No matter what's going on, I'm just going to stay focused on what God has said. I'm going to stay focused as a watchman and stay focused as a workman. Stay focused as a watchman, stay focused as a workman. What we've been talking about this morning, carrying on from last Tuesday, linked in with everything else, this is about living an eternal life on earth. Being a watchman and a workman. We're living for eternal things, eternal purposes, not temporal. So Father, we thank you for what you're doing. We praise your awesome name. Let's just lift our hands before we close this morning. Thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. Father, we exalt you over today. We exalt you over lunchtime. We exalt you over tonight's encounter evening and and subsequent evenings and everything else this week. Father, we thank you for all that you did last week. The amazing way you just moved so powerfully throughout each day and in the evenings and the release of what was going on. We thank you for what you did over the weekend in the congregations. The continued release, release, release. We thank you that today is a day of release. It's a day of release, a day of release. We thank you that tonight is a night of release. It's a night of going forward. We thank you father we praise your awesome mighty wonderful name and everybody said amen amen thank you for listening to this kingdom faith podcast we trust it's been an encouragement to you for more information and resources from kingdom faith and our other audio and video podcasts please visit www.kingdomfaith.com.